Acts chapter 2. In preparation for our reading of Acts chapter 2, and I'll be focusing on verse 42, but in preparation for our reading of Acts chapter 2, will you first of all turn to the prophet Isaiah chapter 59, and I'll begin reading midway uh, through verse 15. Isaiah 59, 15 through chapter 60, verse 3. And this will be in preparation for our sermon text, which comes from Acts chapter 2. You know perhaps something of the state of Israel in the time of Isaiah and the kings during whose reigns Isaiah served as prophet and it was not all good. Verse 15 of Isaiah 59. Truth is lacking. He who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And now we come to Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts around Libya, of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for, it, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the path, the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, 
that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word and our understanding of it. Well, October is now behind us and even November as well, but I hope we are not so far past that season of celebrating biblical reformation that a reformation sermon seems out of place. In fact, let's be clear, we should never reach that point of time when a Reformation sermon seems out of place. The Reformation of the Church, according to the Word of God, is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It is a timeless topic. The liberation of much of 16th century Europe from the iron grip of Roman tradition it demonstrates what God is able to do using a few otherwise ordinary men who are 
possessed of the courage of their biblical convictions. But the 16th century belongs in the 16th century. And sermons focused exclusively on the events of 16th century Europe belong in the pulpits of 16th century Europe. And while it's very true that the living and true God was then doing a remarkable thing for the glory of his own great name and the good of his beloved church, any Reformation preacher today should preach to the need today. That Reformation need is with us in every passing generation. Because if we sinners ever manage by the grace of God to get it right, we seldom seem to be able to keep it right. The price of the church's reformation according to the word of God, like the price of freedom itself, is eternal vigilance. All right, once I determined to preach a sermon on biblical reformation, it didn't take long to decide on the second chapter of Acts as my text. This is true for three main reasons. First, reforming the church in this or any age is a mighty work of the Holy Spirit who was sent by the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. That's who does it. When it comes to reformation, that's who does it. Second, that Holy Spirit regularly uses means. Ordinary biblical means to accomplish the work of our reformation. That's how he does it. And finally, the effect of that mighty work of the Holy Spirit on human hearts and institutions not uncommonly is spectacular. It's spectacular. So there you have something approaching an outline of our subject today. The mighty person poured out from heaven to shape the church. The means practiced to grow and sustain the church. And the multiplication produced when the power of the Holy Spirit is harnessed to those otherwise very ordinary means. But to begin a word of explanation, <clears throat> it might seem to you a little bit forced homiletically to use the second chapter of the Acts as a text for the church's reformation. After all, what we're seeing here on these pages isn't the reformation of a church that over long ages had deformed itself by error. We're seeing in Acts chapter 2 its very first formation, the promised day of its first birth as a New Testament church by the might and power of the Holy Spirit on the firm foundation of Christ's freshly accomplished work of atonement, God here in Acts chapter 2 is something is doing something that is altogether new. It all began here in Jerusalem. It all began now on the day of Pentecost, mere weeks after the cross. 
So how is this about Reformation? Well, this is about Reformation in the same way that a level and a plumb line are about architecture. It doesn't matter whether you're building a 16th century cathedral or a 21st century skyscraper. You still need architectural and construction standards. You need to know what level is, what plumb is, or perpendicularity is. Otherwise, you end up building buildings that lean one way or the other. And you don't want that. Not to care about level floors, not to care about plumb walls, is to invite disaster, eventually, architecturally. And today, we still need to know what the church of the New Testament was ecclesiastically. <clears throat> Because that's what we want more and more to become ourselves. <clears throat> we want to become a genuinely New Testament church. <clears throat> now, of course, that doesn't mean we want to be time-bound or culture-bound. <clears throat> we don't want to be bound to ancient custom for custom's sake. We don't have to dress the way they dressed. We don't have to learn to speak Greek to speak as they spoke. But the church is a bride, isn't she? We've all seen the perfect radiance, the perfect joy of brides before. Some of you are married to brides. They were brides on your wedding day. And those brides, if they were here today, I would be asking them, so look at yourself now, these years perhaps after your wedding. Look at yourself. Are you still crazy after all these years? You either are that or you want to be that crazy in love with that guy you married. Has it worn off? I hope not. Beloved, we're the bride of Christ. Don't we long with all of our hearts to be ever more closely conformed to the expressed wishes of Christ our husband, the one who loved us and gave himself for us? Isn't it the love of Christ that constrains us to study and to practice in our own day his revealed will? For that reason, if for no other, we might spend a lot of time mastering this wonderful chapter in this wonderful book in this wonderful New Testament. <clears throat> it's worth our time. So just as your first birth, and if you're a Christian, your second birth are both the work of God, so also the original forming and the eventual reforming of the church take place only by the might and power of the Holy Spirit. 
when he first formed this, the church out of this insignificant little handful of disciples who weren't much more than boys themselves. When he did that, it wasn't just a little cosmetic work he was doing, a little tinkering around the edges of their character. Neither, when he did this, was he doing the work remotely, standing afar off, either far off from his ancient promises or from his ancient people. He wasn't standing afar off. He wasn't reaching a long, reluctant arm down out of heaven into human history so that he might be able to manage to do something about human sin and misery from a distance. That's not the way he did things. His glory is at stake because his promises are at stake. So he came in person. God came in person. I should probably say he came again in person. The first time it had been in the person of God the Son to purchase the church. And now, just a few short weeks later, he comes in the person of his Holy Spirit to empower the church that's been redeemed by the atoning blood of the incarnate Son of God. He came in person. And the Holy Spirit came in person not for a brief visit, not for the mere 30-something years that God the Son spent securing our redemption before he ascended again on high. On the day of Pentecost, the third person of the Holy Trinity came to stay, to live, right here in the church. Forever. Have you ever had visitors from out of town stay with you for a day or two, or maybe a week or two? You were on your best behavior, weren't you? Every dinner time, you'd put out those little porcelain napkin rings, those uh, beautiful, delicate little things that you haven't used since the day they gave them to you as a wedding present. Every day that they are there, they're there on the table holding the napkins. And while they're there, you try not to let the dirty dishes pile up in the sink. You take away the trash, take it out every day or two. You do everything else that you need to do in order to give the impression that yours is a well-run household. And then that blessed day comes when they're back on the plane to Cleveland or wherever. Now, I don't mean that you're not glad to see them. I just mean that your home wasn't quite the same when they were there with you night and day. Now that they're gone, you can let your hair down again. You can go back to being the person or the family that you always were. That's the way visitors are and the effect that they have on us. But, beloved, the Holy Spirit came in person to the church at Pentecost, not to visit, but to live. And wherever the Holy Spirit lives, there you can expect to see some permanent changes in the lives of sinners. 
there was a time not very long ago when you and I just stumbled along through life in moral darkness. And then the Holy Spirit came, and today we have heavenly light by which to see, by which to make good decisions. There was a time we lay helpless and hopeless under the cruel tyranny of sin and death. Today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we enjoy life not only washed clean, but a life that is rendered indestructible, eternal, never-ending. Because when he arose, the first fruits of the dead, Christ rendered the grave powerless to hurt us. For those united with him by faith, death may claim us one day, but it hasn't any teeth to harm us. Once you were powerless to make any real, meaningful changes in the meandering drift of your life, and now, all of a sudden, your life, your work, your home is endued with the might and power of the Holy Spirit, who makes of you whoever and whatever he will. And the results of the Spirit's work are either glorious already or soon enough they will be in your life and home. On the day of Pentecost, it wasn't a mighty idea or a mighty theology or a mighty religion poured out within the church. He's a mighty person poured out. And he comes to stay. And staying, he brings about change. Real, inward, permanent change. Not like the temporary, superficial changes brought on by your family from Cleveland. Now, positive change implies that there are things needing to be changed. Things needing to be overcome. And in the earliest days of the New Testament church, there was plenty of need. Wasn't there? After all, besides the Great Commission to preach the good news to every nation, what did these 11 young men and boys have to work with? What were their resources? They're rather like the much later Continental Army at Valley Forge. The soldiers that winter of 1777 used to say that many of their meals were a leg of nothing, with no turnips. On provisions like that, their mission was to drive the British out of their cities and off their shores. These young apostles likewise. Their life now is all mission with no means by which to accomplish it. Their captain and ours had, in fact, just a few weeks earlier, suffered the most ignoble, ignominious public disgrace imaginable. Right there along the public highway, outside the gates of Jerusalem. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. And the resurrection changed some of that, but not 
all of it, at least not all at once. The risen Christ had commissioned them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, hadn't he? Into a world divided since the 11th chapter of Genesis, into more diverse and confusing languages than 11 young men could possibly master in a lifetime. This mission is going to take resources far beyond our native natural abilities. Now, you're sensible people, so think it through. If the Lord Jesus had told the church merely to go out into their communities, to smile and be agreeable, maybe to set up a soup kitchen, put pat people on the back, spread feelings of good cheer... If that had been the Great Commission, anybody could do that. With a little practice, anybody could do those things. But the mission of the church is to preach this astonishingly good news that we know to be true. And to preach it in such a way that anyone on earth is able to understand it. This good news of Jesus Christ, risen, reigning, and returning, is propositional. It's propositional. This means it first engages the understanding and only then the affections and finally the will. It culminates in a decisive act of reposing one's faith in Christ alone. But it begins with understanding certain things. If we don't get the gospel into the languages of the nations, then we don't get it into the minds of the nations. No renewal of the minds, no transformation of the heart. So what's this fledgling church going to do to accomplish her great commission? What can the church do? At this stage, we can do nothing more than King Jehoshaphat did many years before when Judah stood defenseless against the combined allied armies of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. King Jehoshaphat of Judah prayed, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on thee. We have this great commission and we have absolutely no way of discharging it. No way of carrying it out. All the ancient curse and confusion of Babel, the Tower of Babel, it's against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on thee. And then the mighty third person is poured out on the gathered church, bringing with him every needful gift. And suddenly, where there was languishing and confusion as to how and when to start, there's order. There's clarity. There's crystal clear communication. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is, in a sense, the reversal 
of Babel's confusion of the tongues. And now suddenly before the church, through no merit of their own, but only for the goodness and compassion and grace of God, there is suddenly an open road for the gospel. This is about the reformation of the church, and I should call to your attention this crucial matter of getting the propositional truth of the Bible into propositions the nations understand. 500 years ago, the Reformation might have ignited briefly in Latin-speaking universities here and there throughout Europe, but the Reformation couldn't have become the wildfire it became in Germany without the Bible's translation into German. The Latin mass just wasn't doing it for the Germans who understood not a word of Latin. It wasn't doing it for the English either. It was John Wycliffe translating the Bible into English as early as the mid-14th century who became the morning star of the Reformation. Languages are important, and languages are a gift of the Holy Spirit. And whether they come to you fast or only through plodding, slow, study through the years, beloved, let me encourage you, all of you, I include myself here, study languages beyond your own. If you're a Christian, study languages beyond your own. The prophet Joel, speaking by the Spirit, was exactly right. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's the application the Apostle Paul later made of that prophecy. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? All the nations of the earth have to get this good news, have to understand it if they're going to believe it. And so the mighty third person of the Godhead was poured out within the church. That actually is the verb that Luke uses again and again in this chapter. The Holy Spirit doesn't just walk in. He's poured out. And in the flood tide of his arrival come all the needful gifts of the ascended Christ to his church. Thousands of people hear. They hear in their own languages and dialects. And hearing, believe on the risen Christ and believing they're saved. And so in this way, the church of the New Testament is born. But what then? How is it sustained? In practical terms, how does the church keep itself true to the work of the Lord from age to age? How does it grow? Certainly not by adopting a passive stance, just sitting idly back, passive spectators as the Spirit washes over us. That's not the way it works. The picture that we get of the New Testament church isn't that of a lucky few who are gathered together in a hot tub. What is the picture of the New Testament church we get? It is the picture of a community growing not only in number, 
but in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is poured out, the Holy Spirit transforms, and the Holy Spirit uses means. These means of grace are spelled out for us in verse 42. This is how the Holy Spirit sustains and grows his church. It's how he forms the church and, as necessary, reforms it. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The transformation of the Christian and the reformation of the church isn't something in which we can afford to be passive. Nor is it something that we can do just around the edges of our lives. If you're a Christian, then Jesus Christ is your life. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is your life. And if you're continually absenting yourself from the apostles' teaching and from fellowship, from the breaking of bread and from prayers, let me suggest that what you've done or what you're doing is cutting yourself off from the family of God. The pleasures of life in the family now and the riches of the family inheritance later. Have you cut yourself off from the devotional life that's pictured here in verse 42? There's no life of the vine that's abiding in a branch that's cut off. A branch cut off bears no fruit, certainly nothing in which you'd take any pleasure. These dry branches, Christless Christians, Christless churches, independent, lifeless. These dry branches lie strewn today across the face of the whole world. There are hundreds of thousands, millions of them. Millions of people calling themselves Christians, but without the life of Christ, without the knowledge of Christ, without the disciplines of Christ, without the beauty of Christ, they just lie there underfoot, under the name Christian. But they're dry branches. They are obstacles. Lying about, they trip people up who might want to get a closer look at the claims of Christ the vine. Dry branches are stumbling blocks. Small wonder the Lord said that they're ready to be gathered up and burned because they don't show the life and beauty of the vine. The means of grace, forming and reforming the church, are confessionally in our Westminster standards three in number. There's the word, sacraments, and prayer. But verse 42 reminds us of a fourth. It's fellowship. It's in the context of sharing with others that we grow and benefit from these other three. 
The Reforming Church continually devotes itself to the Apostles' teaching. This is sound New Testament doctrine and its practical application to our present situations. The Apostles' doctrine. Then there's fellowship. No one's born alone, is he? We're born into a family. Now it might be a family as small as a single mother. But at least your mother was there when you were born, wasn't she? We're born into a family and we're raised in a family. Again, the earthly may help us understand the heavenly here as it helped Nicodemus. Those who are born again by water and the Spirit are born in a family to bless and to be blessed by that fellowship. Families break bread together. And the family that is the New Testament church devotes itself continually to the breaking of bread, often and in memory of him. And of course, we devote ourselves to prayer. Now, this isn't the same thing as silent meditation, which also is important. But prayer is talk, and talk is how relationships grow, isn't it? The original here in verse 42 says that they gave their attention or their devotion to the prayers. Not just to prayer, but to the prayers. Suggesting that there was at least a common understanding in the church of what it is that we say when we pray. And we have such a common pattern of prayer in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Whatever else may surface as matters for prayer on the heavy, grieving hearts of Christ's people, the earnest pleading for such things as the sanctity of our Father's name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will on earth as it is in heaven, to name just a few, these things will regularly appear in the prayers of the New Testament church. On the day of Pentecost, the mighty third person of the Trinity was poured out and the church began practicing the regular means to her own growth in grace. And these now being in place, the Spirit and the gifts, the person and the means, the ascended Christ now honors his bride with an almost astonishing multiplication produced by the intersection of heavenly power with human practice of those four means of grace we just considered. Now here's the multiplication the poured out Holy Spirit produces in the church as Acts chapter 1 opens. We find 11 confused young men and boys That's what we have. And then by verse 14, we discover that there were women among them too, and the Lord's brothers as well. In Acts 15, in Acts 1, 15, the church consists of about 120 names on a roll. 
praying to be sure, but still making crucial decisions, not on the basis of the evident leading of the Holy Spirit, but on the basis of drawing lots. And that's how Matthias came to be numbered with the 11 apostles. That's Acts chapter 1. And then Acts chapter 2 opens. And the Holy Spirit's poured out. And suddenly... Crowds of people, once unable to hear the message, unable to understand it, they're made able. They come together at the sheer wonder of it. Oh, some are still ready to mock at what they don't understand. But the church is made ready and willing and able to set the record straight. To set it straight quickly, directly, boldly. Preaching is clear and timely. Christ is exalted in the preaching. Sin is targeted in the preaching. Hearts are broken by the preaching. Repentance follows on the heels of the preaching. There are baptisms. So that by the end of that day, 3,000 souls have been added to the church. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The results of the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church using the appointed means of grace, the results are simply spectacular. Beloved, it's easy to get lost in the details as they unfold, but let's step back for a moment and take a broad view of this as we conclude. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 and its place in the whole grand sweep of history. All the significant epical changes along the whole course of human history didn't significantly alter the human condition, did they? The flood in the days of Noah, we read about it earlier. That flood eliminated thousands, but it improved none. The calling of Abraham, great as it was, still didn't change Abraham's natural character. He's called the friend of God. He's not called the son or a son. He's the friend of God. The formation of the nation of Israel in Egypt and their exodus, as great as those events were, manifestly didn't transform them. Sinai, the conquest of the promised land, the days of the judges, the monarchy, the exile, the whole gloriously unfinished story of the Old Testament only goes to prove the preacher's point in Ecclesiastes 1. That a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The whole administration of the Old Testament law wasn't able to so much as touch the human character. It condemned us, but it didn't change us. Couldn't change us. And then Christ, Jesus, 
purchased our redemption with his blood. And he poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. And he came to visit, not for a season, but to live. And is living in the church, which is the true dynamic of our Reformation, the Spirit's living in the church, has changed and still changes the course of human history. Because he changes us. He changes us. So we're new men. We're a new creation. A new humanity in Christ. And in conclusion, let me tell you plainly, the world has never seen anything like it. The world has never seen anything like you. Abraham was the friend of God. Moses was a servant in his house. You and I in Christ Jesus are his dear children. His little ones, and it's his little ones, clothed in the might and power of the Holy Spirit, his little ones who are still to this day turning the world upside down. Amen.